Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 449. It's titled, The House of Cards, Evaluating Economic and Financial Warning Signs. I have a friend that shares with me paid Instagram reels that invariably warn about something bad that is going to happen economically or financially. I sometimes watch a portion of the video or read the transcript. Usually, it's the repeat of some dire prediction in which the doomsday day event keeps getting pushed back because the thing never happens. Or it's some financial or economic news item, such as the Federal Reserve studying central bank digital currencies, and it gets totally blown out of proportion. Fear-mongering is highly lucrative because we all crave solutions that alleviate fears. We want somebody to tell us it's going to be okay. We don't engage in fear-mongering at Money for the Rest of Us, but we also don't stick our head in the sand. There are times when we step back and ask, what if the house of cards comes crashing down, be it the stock market or our home currency? At what point should we start to worry that economic and financial developments are off track and heading toward a major disaster? Fortunately, there are actually things that we can look at to decide whether things are really, really going wrong. I occasionally get thoughtful emails from listeners and plus members who are level-headed investors, but they sometimes begin to worry as they consider things that could go wrong. For example, here are some recent questions from listeners and members, which I'll address in this episode. First, at what point do you get concerned enough to have serious doubts about the house of cards, the stock market, collapsing? It appears to me that the stock market is just juiced with the Federal Reserve printing money. What personally gives you the confidence to stay in the market given our country's financial situation? Another question. At what point does our level of debt and interest payments on the debt begin to cause serious problems for America, in your opinion? How would one diversify to protect assets against the loss of political stability? And finally, a listener read about Brazil, Russia, India, and China intending to set up their own international banking system in order to bypass the SWIFT system, which is a system of banks for transferring funds and to generate their own currency. And the listener asked, does that change anything with respect to the dollar collapsing? Notice all of these questions have some element that involves what I consider the most ludicrous thing about our financial system, money. Aristotle in politics wrote, wealth is often assumed to consist of a quantity of money, but money is the thing with which business and trade are employed. Money is used for transactions. Wealth is not having a stack of currency. Aristotle continued, but at other times, on the contrary, it is thought that money is nonsense and entirely a convention, but by nature nothing. That's true. 
Money is nothing. It has no intrinsic value. Although there is an unlimited supply because if it can be created out of thin air, you can create as much as you want, even though it's not tangible. It's not really worth anything. Yet we can use it to buy things. And amazingly, other people accept it. We've been traveling in England for the past few weeks, and we have a friend in Cornwall who is a ceramicist. She mentioned how thrilled she was when someone purchased one of her works and gave her money. But then she laughed when I mentioned she sold this beautiful, tangible thing for a worthless piece of paper or perhaps some digits in her bank account. I have previously shared this quote by former Fed Chair Alan Greenspan. He said, there's nothing to prevent the federal government from creating as much money as it wants and paying it to somebody. The federal government, working in tandem with the central bank, can create an infinite amount of cash. Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank President Neil Kashkari said exactly that in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic on 60 Minutes. When asked if the central bank can flood the financial system with money, Kashkari replied, there is no end to our ability to do that. There is an infinite amount of cash at the Federal Reserve. That can freak us out, an unlimited amount. But having all this money flowing through the economy isn't sufficient. There needs to be something to buy, food, transportation, health care services. Greenspan, in testifying in front of Congress, highlighted this problem of the government creating money, let's say to pay Social Security benefits. He said, the cash itself is nice to have, but it's got to be in the context of the real resources being created at the time those benefits are paid so that you can purchase real resources with the benefits. If there's nothing to buy, money is useless. There needs to be real things, real resources to buy. We need a dynamic private sector economy that is producing tangible goods and services. Money, for people to use it, needs to be convenient. There needs to be enough to make change. We should be able to easily transfer it, borrow it, spend it. And if, it, if it's not convenient, then people won't use it. That's why most cryptocurrencies languish. No one uses them as money, or very few do. Instead, they hoard it, hoping it will go up in value because cryptocurrency, except in some developing countries where their home currency doesn't hold its value and is inconvenient, there you see more use of cryptocurrency. But in developed nations where the currency systems work, you're not seeing it. Money needs to be convenient and it needs to hold its value. Its ability to purchase a consistent quantity of goods from hour to hour, from day to day, not necessarily from month to month because there, there is some loss of purchasing power through inflation. There needs to be a balance between convenience and holding its value. And that's what central banks do, along with the federal government. Make sure that there's enough money in the system to facilitate transactions. But central banks can't create real wealth in terms of goods and services. It can only create digital money. We've been traveling in England for two weeks. And I haven't given much thought to the British pound because we have very little cash. I've gone to the ATM once. So I have little exposure to the pound, even though we've been spending money, but mostly using a credit card. But it's been amazing to me as we've used our phones to summon complete strangers to come pick us up and take us somewhere using Uber. 
We've booked lodging on Airbnb and have had strangers let us stay at the house. We've used our phone to book train tickets to ride across the country. And even though some of the trains got canceled due to a shortage of staff, there was another train 30 minutes later, or in one time we went 30 minutes earlier. I don't know anyone who operates the train system. And yet it works for me. We booked a rental car at Enterprise, and they let me drive this Mercedes worth over 30,000 pounds off the lot. And they didn't even check my driver's license. They don't even know if I can drive. They had upgraded us because the vehicle we had booked wasn't available. When do I get worried about the financial system, the economic system? It's when I can no longer trust others to facilitate the transactions like we talked about. That I have to worry about the Uber driver, whether he'll rob us. Or I have to worry that I can't safely walk down the street. Or that I'm not able to cross the country safely knowing very few people. David Graeber, in his book, Dawn of Everything, talked about three fundamental primary freedoms. The freedom to move, to live where we want, to travel. That's a basic freedom. The freedom to disobey orders, not to break the law, but to disobey orders. If we don't like our job, to quit and find another one. And the freedom to reorganize social relations, to choose our friends, to not spend time with our family if we don't want. Those are basic freedoms that need to be there for an economic and financial system to work, for us to have well-being. There's also basic goods that an economy, a financial system, and society should provide. And I've discussed these in the past. They're from Robert and Edward Skidelsky's book, How Much is Enough? Money in the Good Life. And the basic goods include health, security, respect, personality, the ability to pursue a plan of creativity for ourselves have our, a private space, our own garden, harmony in nature. We're in Yorkshire, Dales area, and there's all these public walking trails that go through private grounds. And that's just how this country has evolved. Other basic goods include friendship, leisure. So I start to worry when those basic freedoms and basic goods are violated. Not on the margin. There will always be political debates about laws, taxes, etc. But there's generally an agreement, I think, that these basic freedoms and basic goods are inalienable, that everyone should have them, and there shouldn't be fundamental violations of those. And if there is, then I not only start to worry about society, but then I worry about the economic and the financial system. A few weeks ago, I mentioned our car, a rental car. We were sitting in the car, and it was attacked, and someone broke the back windshield and tried to steal our luggage. That's the exception, though. One incident. Most of the time in the Bay Area, we felt completely safe. Countries that provide those basic freedoms and goods are attractive. Those are places where people want to go and live and work, either come legally or Ill illegally. I would be worried if more people wanted to leave my country than wanted to come in, that there was less opportunity where I lived. I would be worried if entrepreneurs weren't starting new businesses, if they couldn't raise capital, if there wasn't sufficient dynamism in the economy, but instead it was stagnating. There was a loss of hope. The questions from the listeners were sort of big picture questions on the currency, on the government finances, on the stock market. I care about what's happening at the local level, on the streets. Is there trust? Is there a vibrant private sector? Are people selling things on the street, creating things, helping each other, smiling, laughing? That's what life is. And, and most of it 
At, at that level, it isn't about the federal budget deficit or the national debt or the currency. Those things are important, but those things will fall apart if there's not trust and creativity and dynamism at the local level, at the individual level, regionally. Now, let's address some of the specific concerns regarding currency and government finances. The question was, at what point does our level of debt and interest payments on the debt begin to cause serious problems for America, in your opinion? I looked at the data, and that's what's amazing is we can see the data and we can see projections. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. In 2009, the U.S. ran a budget deficit. The federal government spent $1.4 trillion more than it received in tax revenue. This was during the great financial crisis and the deficit as a percent of the economy or the output or GDP was 9.8%. In 2020, during the pandemic, that budget deficit was $3.1 trillion, almost 15% of GDP. I think it was the biggest budget deficit the U.S. ran since World War II. In 2021, it was $2.8 trillion, about 12% of GDP. Last year, 2022, it's $1.4 trillion. So it's smaller, but as big as it was on an absolute basis in 2009, about 5.4% of GDP. But I'm concerned that this year, the budget deficit jumped up again, $1.5 trillion, due to less tax revenue, but also spending. It's higher than last year. And that trend, and I'll link to it in the notes, where the Congressional Budget Office forecast the revenue as a percent of the economy and the cost for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, discretionary spending, interest, they go out to 2053. And what matters, and we discussed this in our episode on the national debt, is how big is that total deficit as a percent of the economy? Because that gets rolled over into the total public debt, the national debt as a percent of the economy. And what matters is it's not its absolute size, but its size relative to that dynamic private sector that are paying the taxes to service the debt. And if the private sector isn't growing, then we have problems, as I mentioned. And the private sector doesn't grow if there's not trust at the local level. The federal debt held by the public in 2023 is expected to be around 100%. The total debt including intergovernmental holdings because of, for example, the Social Security Trust Fund. They own government bonds. They own about $6.8 trillion. The amount that the public owns is $26.2 trillion. So the total gross debt is $33 trillion, 124% of GDP. Just the debt held by the public is about 100%. And the Congressional Budget Office projects by 2053, 30 years from now, the public debt as a percent of GDP will be 180%. So it'll keep growing, and that includes everything. Interest, Medicaid, and the national debt will be much, much higher. The the total debt will be well over $100 trillion. But relative to the size of the economy, they're projecting 180%. Is that too much? It's just a number. Japan's gross debt to GDP currently is 260%. Their interest rate, the 10-year government bond interest rate, 0.7%. There isn't the concern there. Not that there shouldn't be, but the absolute number of the debt doesn't matter. The size of the debt relative to the economy does matter in terms of the ability to service it. But again, the debt, the debt is held 
It's an asset. It's all these people. You and I own government bonds and we're, we're getting interest income off of it. What matters isn't the debt size. The size relative to the economy matters more. But the true measure of whether we should be worried is the level of interest rates. Interest rates are determined by inflation expectations. They're determined by expectations regarding what the central bank is doing with its policy rate. And we discussed this last week. The Fed funds rate in the U.S., it's over 5%. It's expected to stay at that level for months. And that has, that has led to longer, higher term interest rates. But it's that third element, which I've mentioned in the past, the term premium, that really matters in terms of whether financial market participants are worried or not about government finances. That term premium is additional yield, higher interest that investors demand to hold on to this debt. And it's negative. All the concerns out there about the national debt, if we look at the level of interest rates, the term premium is negative. It was over 1.3% most of the time from the mid-1970s to 2005. The term premium was over 2% from 2008 to 2011, but it's been negative most of the time since 2015. In other words, as the United States fiscal situation has worsened with government shutdowns, with debt ceiling crises, the term premium has stayed negative. I'll start to worry when I see a positive term premium, which means higher interest rates. But for now, I'm not overly worried. If we look at inflation expectations, they've come down. 10-year expected inflation is between 2.4 and 2.6%. Now, the lack of political consensus regarding the debt ceiling, passing the budget, bringing it to the brink of default, government shutdowns, it's, it's concerning, but it needs to show up in interest rates, and it's not. And it might. And it's one reason I don't own long-term bonds, like a long-term bond fund with, a, let's say, a 20-year duration. When I own longer-term bonds, I buy an individual bond so I can lock in the yield and lock in the return and hold it to maturity. But we can focus on interest rates and what comprises those rates before we get worried. And, and all the data is there regarding the, the budget deficit, the national debt, the projections. And we can see Japan as an example. Apparently, if your debt to GDP is over 200%, it still doesn't cause a concern because who owns the debt? In Japan, mostly Japanese households and businesses, and they're getting interest income. They owe it to themselves. And the same for the U.S. national debt. Most of it's owned by households and businesses in the U.S. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in my profession, I've seen how important it is to get quality candidates to interview. And LinkedIn can help you with that. It's not just a job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. So hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com David. That's linkedin.com David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. 
If you're looking for a central location to get the key information on the markets, the pulse of what's going on, I can't think of a better spot than Yahoo Finance. It was just there. Could see very quickly what happened today, how stocks sank to end their worst month of 2024. I could see the actual market declines for the U.S., Europe, Asia, what interest rates did, commodities, currencies. I could see holdings of mine that I recently viewed and key headlines from leading financial publications all in one place, one screen at Yahoo Finance without any annoying pop-ups. Plus, with Yahoo Finance, you can get a consolidated view of all your investments and retirement accounts, all in one place. The key to investing is access to quality information, and you can get that at Yahoo Finance. They've completely redesigned the website. It's comprehensive, it's high quality, and it can help you with your investing. So for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Next question is, at what point do you get concerned enough to have serious doubts about the house of cards, the stock market collapsing? It appears to me the stock market is just juiced with the Federal Reserve printing money. What personally gives you the confidence to stay in the market given our country's financial situation? Well, clearly a big jump in interest rates would put downward pressure on the stock market. Those higher interest rates impact households and businesses. So that, that, would, that would concern me. So I focus on interest rates. If I don't see earnings growth, there's a lack of productivity increases within companies, a lack of new products, a lack of, basically a lack of corporate earnings growth, which is the lifeblood of, of stock returns. If earnings aren't growing, then dividends aren't growing. And then we might as well just own a bond because we need growing cash flow for the stock market to increase. But the stock market's comprised of thousands and thousands of companies. They're incredibly diverse, dynamic, seeking solutions to problems, getting customer feedback, adapting. It's very, very bottom up. The stock market is not controlled by the Federal Reserve. We saw a 40% increase in the money supply during the pandemic. That was a combination of quantitative easing with the Federal Reserve purchasing bonds and the U.S. government running a budget deficit to GDP of 15%. When there's a federal budget deficit and the Federal Reserve is buying bonds, that's essentially sending money into the economy, free money. And it inflated the price of lots of things, not just the stock market, houses, watches. And because there was so much more money and the supply of real resources was constrained because of the pandemic, that led to inflation. But in the past year, when the U.S. and global stock market have appreciated or have returned 19% in the past year, we've seen the money supply actually decrease and that drop in liquidity is because the Federal Reserve has shrunk their balance sheet, the number of bonds that they own by almost a trillion dollars in the past year, more than 10% drop in the the value of treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities that they own. So it's gone in the opposite direction. Fewer assets. The government has had to issue additional bonds to replace the ones the Federal Reserve owned, and that led to less cash in the economy. About a 7% drop in the money supply, which is cash, checking accounts, money market accounts, in the past year. 
And the stock market still went up because the stock market anticipates increased earnings growth over the next year. So I monitor, we monitor what central banks are doing, the amount of money being created, but that's not what drives financial markets. The private sector drives financial markets. Central bank actions can influence it, but over the long term, over decades, if there is not a growing private sector with growing earnings, cash flow, then that's what drives the stock market, not the Fed. The next question then is this listener that was reading about what Brazil, Russia, and India, and China are doing, the idea that they want to set up their own currency, a new banking system, and maybe they will. A reserve currency is a currency that central banks own. They have this money that they can create, but they go out and they buy dollars or they buy euros with their domestic currency. And if we look at the reserve currencies around the world, this is data from the IMF, 59% of reserves held by central banks outside of the U.S. is in dollars. 20% is in euros and 6% in the Japanese yen. People still use the dollar. Even central banks hold the dollars. Half of global trade is invoiced in the U.S. dollar. Nobody's telling companies to invoice their trade in U.S. dollars. They choose to do that on their own. That's how the system has evolved. So 50% of trade is invoiced in the dollars, even though U.S. is 10th overall in trade. The U.S. dollar is used in terms of a foreign exchange transaction, about $6.6 trillion per day. 90% of foreign exchange transactions are done in the dollar. Instead of converting from yen to euro, there's a conversion from yen to dollars and dollars to euros. The, the U.S. dollar is involved in the vast majority of tradings. The U.S. dollar is the currency most used by businesses outside of the U.S. to borrow. There's $13 trillion of U.S. dollar borrowings by non-bank entities, private businesses, and households that live outside of the U.S. It includes $5.8 trillion of bank loans. That's huge. The second largest is 4 trillion euros of debt by non-bank entities based outside the Eurozone. So there's three times more dollar-denominated foreign debt than there is euros. And then the third is Japanese yen, about 55 trillion yen, which equates to $372 billion of yen borrowing by non-bank entities outside of Japan. I'll worry about the dollar collapsing when the amount of dollars being used in foreign exchange, amount of dollar borrowings, the amount of trade invoicing dollars, when that seriously declines and the trend is down, and the trend is not down, that stayed about that level for the past few years. Not that it has to, but these are bottom-up decisions made around the world by individual businesses. And it can change if it changes, and it will change. I suspect the dollar will be less dominant in the decades ahead, but that doesn't mean it's going to collapse. The final question is, how would one diversify to protect assets against the loss of political stability or any other of these bad events that could happen? That's where diversification comes in. I use an asset garden approach, and I, I share my portfolio every month, my percentages and the holdings on Money for the Rest of Us Plus. I have about 14% in stocks, 15% in bonds, and many other asset types. I have public assets, private assets. I have hedges such as gold. I do own cryptocurrency real estate, land, 
We just diversify. So we scale our position. So no one big position, if it goes against us, can harm our financial standing. And then we maintain our flexibility in spending. So we're not overly indebted. The, The worst thing in the world is to suffer some type of financial calamity and have too much debt and be having to make decisions because of our debt. But we should monitor, and that's what we do on this podcast and on Plus Membership, we monitor these trends. We monitor the trends with interest rates. We monitor the national debt. We monitor myriad things to see if things are really falling apart, and they're not. There's definitely some concerns, but at the local level, which is the most important, our safety, our security, our basic freedoms, they're still there. And there's this there as you travel most places around the world. And that's that's incredible. That the freedom to travel and to be and to do and create. That's the lifeblood of our financial and economic system, not the budget deficit or central banks. They do influence, but ultimately it's the trust and making sure the amount of money in the system doesn't get out of whack with the real goods and services that are being created by the private sector. That's episode 449. Thanks for listening. I have loved teaching you about investing on this podcast for over nine years. Some topics, though, are just better explained in writing or with a chart. And that's why we have a weekly free email newsletter, The Insider's Guide. In that newsletter, I share charts, graphs, and other materials that can help you better understand investing. It's some of the most important writing I do each week. That's why I spend a couple hours on that newsletter on Wednesday morning, as I try to share something that will be helpful to you. If you're not on the list, please subscribe. Go to moneyfortherestofus.com to subscribe to the free Insider's Guide weekly email newsletter. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.